The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Uh, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome and Happy New Year to you. My name is Eve Patton, and I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. And we're really pleased in the Hub to be hosting this uh, event today, which is organised in association with the School of English in Trinity and the School of English in DCU. Uh, and it is on the, the versatile and very talented but sometimes overlooked Irish author and folklorist Porrig Colum. Colum died on the 11th of January in 1972. So today marks a half century since his death. And to mark this anniversary, uh, Porrig White and Keith O'Sullivan have put together a number of events and projects, including uh, today's proceedings. So I want to begin by thanking and congratulating Porrig and Keith uh, for this very important initiative, which is supported by uh, Trinity's Arts, Social Sciences, Benefactions Fund. Um, and, and with that, I wish everyone the very best for a day of very stimulating papers and discussions. And uh, I'll hand over now to Parag White. That's great. Uh, thank you very much, Eve. Um, I guess, meal uh, week to everybody at Trinity Longroom Hub for making this symposium possible, um, but in particular, especially to uh, Francesca, who guided us through that transition from what we, what we had hoped to be an in-person gathering to an online gathering. So thank you all for uh, coming along to today's symposium. Um, we'll have a keynote and then we'll have panel discussions and a round table uh, during the day. And this is all to celebrate the life and work of Porrick Cullum. So, as we know, uh, Cullum was born in Longford in 1881, um, and he was born into a workhouse, which he'd like to remind people, um, because his father was a master of the workhouse. Um, but Cullum had a distinguished career then as a playwright, as a poet, as a folklorist, a collector of stories, as a novelist, and as a short story writer himself. He was a founding member of the Abbey Theatre, and he was heavily involved in the Irish Revival, and he, he had... He, made friends with Yeats, Gregory, Arthur Griffith, and so on. But he also liked to set himself apart um, from Yeats and Gregory uh, in his career uh, and in his writing as well. And his plays included Broken Soil, um, and that was later rewritten as, as The Fiddler's House. Um, the Land from 1905 is an important play because it's seen as one of the first popular successes at the Abbey Theatre. And then there's also Thomas Muscari, um, which I think we'll hear a little bit about later on, um, a play that was from 1910 um, that sparked quite a bit of controversy. Um, but Cullum didn't stay in Ireland. He left for the US in 1914 um, and he became an American citizen in 1945, receiving an honorary degree from Columbia University. And here he worked very closely with his brilliant wife, Mary Cullum, um, and they collaborated on many projects together and uh, they were friends with James Joyce and they worked on the transcriptions of Finnegan's Wake and Joyce as a friend, he, he directly references Cullum in Ulysses um, with one of the characters saying, I liked Cullum's drover. 
yes, I think he was that queer thing genius. So he's best remembered as a poet, though, in kind of popular Irish culture. Um, and the old woman of the roads, I think um, most people who went to school in Ireland in the 20th century had to learn this off by heart. Um, and even just kind of the, those lines, oh, to have a little house, just bring back so many memories, so many recollections, um, good and bad, I'm sure. But um, this is this was probably one of the most popular poems and it's been recorded by, uh, and also one of his popular songs, uh, She Moves Through the Fair, um, was recorded by musicians. Um, and he's associated with this song in particular as he, you know, he claimed that he collected um, some of the, the words and him and Herbert Hughes collected the tune in Donegal and he wrote many of the lyrics after that. Uh, and it was published in 1909. But he's also had a prolific career as an author of myths and legends for children. And I suppose that's where I um, first came into Colm's work was through his, his children's stories. Um, and three of his books were cited retroactively as Newbery Honour books, so The Golden Fleece, The Voyagers and The Big Tree of Bunlahi. And this is a huge achievement, hugely significant for an Irish author of children's literature. And really Colm had a significant impact on the development of, of children's literature, both in Ireland and abroad. As Eve mentioned there, he died on this day in 1972 in Connecticut at the age of 90, um, and he's buried in St. Fintan Cemetery in Sutton. And we're here to celebrate Colm's work, but I also want to acknowledge um, so many um, of his friends, his family, his colleagues, who have championed his work over the years, um, and have ensured that we didn't forget about um, how great uh, he was and all the many things he did. But in particular, I'd like to pay um, tribute to, to one of them, um, Clean Anisgulwan, who was grandniece of Pora Cullum. And she worked as an assistant librarian in the Library of Trinity uh, here and uh, from 1987 until her untimely death um, in February 2021. So looking at his work as a whole, it's clear that Colin was an extraordinary author. He, did, he had a desire to not only tell stories, but to meditate on the role and function of stories and storytelling in society, and really to highlight the power of stories. And a lot of this comes out in his essay, Storytelling New and Old from 1927. Um, he talks about, um, you know, through the, through the possession of a part of the heritage of poetry, of story, children can enter or keep in the world that has been spoken about, the world of imagination, thought and intuition. Um, he goes on to argue that perhaps the time is at hand when we will have an education that will be directed toward training the, the intelligence and the will through the imagination. But really what I think is key, he talks about poetry and story as a talisman that gives an entrance into the world that we may not be separated from without loss to our humanity. And this is the basis of his writing um, when he's writing for younger audiences, younger readers or older readers. Uh, his storytelling is complex and it's complicated. Hopefully today it's about exploring some of these complexities and columns genius, as we heard, in greater detail and from varying perspectives. And I think as I have been doing my research on Colm over the years, I've realised that in, to fully understand his children's literature, I really need to know what's going on in his other literature, in his theatre, in his poetry and so on. And to understand his poetry, um, we need to understand what's going on in his novels. And that's what's wonderful about today's event is having this conversation 
and learning more and more about Cullum and all the many things that he did and how he did them. I'm particularly interested in kind of his, the, the source material and how that might relate to ideas of audience, you know, writing about rural Catholic experiences for Dublin audiences in his theatre, writing Irish myths and legends for a US audience, and then commissioned to write myths and legends of Hawaii for a native audience. So I have many questions about Cullum and his work that I'm still trying to work through. And I'd encourage people throughout the day to join in that conversation. And hopefully, you know, we can we can figure out some of these uh, answers together. But, you know, I'm curious about everything from the meaning of some of his tales in the big tree of Banlahi to how he ended up as a judge for a Miss Europe contest. No doubt uh, to, today through our conversations. We'll answer some questions, but uh, many more will arise. So that's really all I have to say. Just one last thing, a word of thanks really to the Arts and Social Sciences Benefaction Fund, Trinity Longroom Hub, um, to our brilliant research assistant, Siobhan Callahan, for her stellar work in coordinating today's event. So we're off to a great start. We've got started, so thanks Siobhan for that. Um, to my collaborator, Keith O'Sullivan, for his work. Um, it's a pleasure as ever. Thanks to our speakers. Um, the full schedule is available on the Long Room Hub webpage. Uh, do remember that after this keynote, um, you'll have to log on, you'll have to use a different link to log on to the remainder of the symposium, so please do that. The first panel will kick off at 11.15. Um, and we'll also be tweeting about the event um, using the hashtag #PoorCullum. so do join us on Twitter as well. So um, over to Keith, thanks very much. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you, Porik, for that wonderful overview uh, of Cullum that's going to set us up for, for the day. And just want to echo uh, my colleague Porik's words of thanks to uh, particularly Francesca and Siobhan, who have done such a fantastic job, as Porik has said, uh, of getting us here this morning. Um, also want to say that, um, like Porik, I'm excited about today's symposium, um, a celebration of, of Cullum's life and work. Uh, and I think this, the 50th anniversary of his death, is a, is a really good time to re-examine um, his legacy as a, as a cultural and literary figure. Um, and as Eve mentioned uh, in her introduction, a figure whose life and work may not have received uh, as much academic at attention as it and he uh, might deserve. So really looking forward to see what comes out of today's uh, keynote and the panel sessions later in the day. Um, I've got the really nice task uh, of introducing, um, um, not that uh, Margaret needs an introduction, but uh, we'll give her one anyway, um, our keynote uh, today, Margaret Callagher, uh, who's going to talk on Pora Cullum's challenge uh, to historical biography. Margaret, um, as I think everyone knows here, is Professor and Chair of Anglo-Irish Literature and Drama at uh, University College Dublin. She's also uh, a board member of MOLI, uh, the Museum of Literature Ireland, and was the UCD academic lead uh, for the development of that museum. She is chair uh, of the Irish Film Institute, uh, with I think her term coming to an end next month, so you're nearly there, Margaret. Um, Margaret's scholarly publications, as I think we all know, um, are um, groundbreaking and have received numerous awards, including the uh, Michael J. Durkin Prize uh, for Books on Language and Culture by the American Conference of Irish Studies. So unsurprisingly, Margaret has held visiting scholarships uh, the world over. I'm jealous of the list. I know it includes Boston College and Peking University and Concordia University. 
uh, Montreal, St. John's, Cambridge, uh, 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 and on and on. Um, so a fantastic um, uh, an array of um, visiting scholarships there. And she's currently working on a, a joint biography of uh, Mary and Pora Cullum. Uh, the beginnings of that work um, made possible by uh, a recent Fulbright uh, Fellowship at the Glucksmann House at New York University. Um, I want to throw in a little uh, personal anecdote, Margaret. I hope this doesn't embarrass you too much. Uh, although not much older than I am, um, I had the privilege actually of being one of Margaret's undergraduate students uh, in her very early years as a very young lecturer. And um, I think it's a testament really, not in any way to my great uh, power of memory, but really to the genuinely engaging nature um, of Margaret's lectures. That, you know, I, I still can't read many texts. Uh, I was, th was rereading Woodland Heights for, uh, for, for teaching uh, there uh, last month. And I just realized I can't even reread a text like that without being impressed by its uh, uneasy dualisms. And that's all dead to you, Margaret. So a sincere thank you. Um, so look, without further embarrassment to or for anyone else, I'm gonna hand uh, over to Margaret for her uh, talk on Porrick Cullum's challenge uh, to historical biography. Can I just also say that there is a Q&A um, if anyone would like to um, put a question into the Q&A, we can pick them up the end uh, and uh, I will uh, moderate that and uh, send them forward to Margaret for uh, consideration. Uh, Keith, many thanks for the generous introduction and indeed happy memories indeed, in including of the late great John Devitt, who was also uh, held you in great esteem. So it's, it's, it's lovely to invoke him indeed this morning as well, Keith. Uh, and thanks to you and to Podrick for providing the context for me to give and the talk this morning. Uh, I'd like to echo your both of your thanks to Siobhan Callaghan, to Francesca O'Flaherty, O'Rafferty, excuse me, and to say how much I'm looking forward to the day um, I snuck a look at the attendees list and it's wonderful to see friends and colleagues here from all over the world, from Dublin to Japan to South Africa. So I think that's one of the things we've gained uh, in these days of, of, of Zoom uh, seminars. Um, in the context of my ongoing work, I, I also want to give some thanks, uh, and I'm already indebted to Martin Morris, um, archivist of Longford County Council, who in, is with us in the uh, audience today for all of his work um, on Porrick uh, and Mary Cullum, including uh, his work on the recent Porrick Cullum gathering in May. Uh, and I'm particularly grateful to Martin for giving me introductions to members of the Cullum family. Uh, and I look forward to continuing contact with them. Vivian Igoe, Maureen Murphy and Colin Kenny have also given me invaluable materials um, for my talk today. But Boalam Freshen, Kovron, a yen of Lemwinter Kina. I know how much she was esteemed both professionally and personally. Augustan Vwinter Galer is Ahlam Vormrish. Uh, as Porik has brought out so well already this morning, there are so many ways in which um, we can we can approach um, Porik column. My choice this morning is to focus on that of uh, the topic of historical biography and technology allowing. I'm just going to share my screen. Great. Uh, apologies, just uh, see. 
we're back to the beginning. Um, okay. Um, so my double focus, which I think is hopefully implicit in, in the title here, um, is uh, to look at Pori Cullum, both in the context, obviously, of my own work, um, uh, working on the joint biography of Porik and Mary, but also this morning, I'm going to focus on Cullum himself as biographer, uh, and I'd like to begin with quite a long quotation from Cullum's own recollections. They were published in the Dublin magazine um, between 1949 and 1950. Um, and are recollections on the early years of the Abbey Theatre. Here, Cullum is invoking Plutarch's lives of the noble Greeks and Romans, commonly called uh, the Parallel Lives or Plutarch's Lives, uh, a series of 48 biographies of famous men. So over to Cullum. My conclusion will be a comment, Plutarch lied. The great thing cannot be altogether the creation of the one great man. When Willie Fay wrote about the foundation of the theatre, when Lady Gregory wrote about it, they were on the side of Plutarch, the side of the historian who was there to tell us that the great man, the hero, does uh, everything. But let us be more discriminating than Plutarch. There are certain imponderables working through minor men and women that instigate great men to give form and scope to what the others are reaching towards. And the quotation continues. Without these imponderables, without the fermenting but unkeyed up minds surrounding the great man, no dominating work is ever achieved. The fermenting minds, the man who can give them focus, were present in the moment that created a national theatre for Ireland. My recollection assures me that behind the writers and players was a national feeling that manifested itself through the young men and women belonging to the political cultural clubs in the Dublin of the time. It was they who gave the project spirit and the breath of life. It's an intriguing, and I think in many ways a revealing quotation, uh, and I'll return to aspects of it later. My project, uh, as Keith mentioned, uh, Lives and the Dream, is a joint biography of Mary and Porrick. It follows their lives from the literary and revolutionary Dublin to literary New York, with passages of time in Hawaii in the early 1920s and in France in the early 1930s, where they were close intimates of James, Nora and Lucia Joyce. In composing a joint biography, my objective is to move beyond a focus on the single literary life to a study of relationships. In the personal sphere, such as love and courtship, marriage, friendship, love affairs, political affiliations, and also the professional sphere, the significance of mentors, introducers, advocates, and editors. Relatedly, a key dimension is the study and exploration of networks, from the literary revival networks of Dublin to the New York literary circles of authors, publishers and critics. Within these circles, Mary and Porrick can seem at once everywhere and nowhere. Everywhere, from a contemporary perspective, as I'm finding increasingly in my research, 
but nowhere, at least uh, on occasion, in terms of how they are recognized within parts of American and Irish cultural history. To pause on the photographs here, um, they both have evocative contexts. For example, this photo of Mary is now used in the Guggenheim website, where the website records that she was awarded two Guggenheim fellowships, one in 1930 and one in 1938. And the younger picture of Porrick Cullum sitting on a wall uh, comes from the Digital Library in UCD. I'm very pleased to be part of a project with other UCD colleagues and led by Helen Salterer, who's the granddaughter of Constantine Curran and Helen Laird. Helen Laird, known as Honor Lavelle, uh, and a contemporary and indeed theatrical collaborator with Colum. Um, Helen has spearheaded a very welcome pro project to republish Constantine Curran's 1968 memoir, or the term Curran himself preferred, Written Memories, entitled James Joyce Remembered. And it includes a foreword by Curran's friend, Pori Cullum. In the preface, uh, Curran says, quoting from Burke here, I write in vindication of my town and generation and out of the attachment which Edmund Burke approved to the subdivision, the love of the little platoon we belong to. One of the most evocative uh, descriptions of Dublin as town in the early part of the 20th century comes from Mary Cullum's own memoir, Life and the Dream, published in 1947. And I, I evoke it, I suppose, in the absence of our being able uh, to meet in person today, her description of Dublin um, 100 years and indeed more ago. Dublin was a small city, the suburbs stretched out to a distance, but the centre, the old part of the city, was circumscribed and bristled with movements of various kinds, dramatic, artistic, educational. There were movements for the restoration of the Irish language, for reviving native arts and crafts, for preserving ancient ruins, for resurrecting native costume, an array of political movements. Here too were the theatres and the tea rooms and pubs, which corresponded to the cafe life of the continental city. In the centre too were the headquarters of the clubs and societies, some at war with each other, but all exciting and somehow focused towards one end, a renaissance. Between Abbey Street and College Green, a five minutes walk, one could meet every person of importance in the life of the city, at a certain time in the afternoon. From town to generation, there one thinks of course of the very useful model recently provided by Roy Foster, which itself represents, I think, a, a welcome turn in parts of Irish historiography towards the prosopographical, the collective biography rather than the single biography most fully realized here in Foster's 2014 work, Vivid Faces, where in what he calls a group portrait or group biography, Foster explores what he calls the unexpected lives of that extraordinary generation and redirects historical attention to the ways, uh, as the quotation shows here, the ways 
in which a revolutionary generation comes to be made rather than born. We live in a period of commemoration, clearly today, marking the 50th uh, uh, anniversary of Pori Cullen's death. And for that reason, and with the collective concepts of town and generation in mind, I decided today to focus on two instances of Pauri Cullum's own work as a biographer, especially mindful, again, of the timeliness, perhaps, of, of those subjects for us today uh, in the context of other centenaries. We've recently marked, as we all know, the centenary of the signing of the treaty, of the treaty debates, and later this week, uh, we'll be looking at the handover of Dublin Castle. So it seemed to me a good time to look at Cullum's biography of Arthur Griffith, published in 1959 by Brown and Nolan in Ireland as Arthur Griffith, but given the title Ourselves Alone uh, for the American publication, which I'm showing here. Uh, and the second, of course, the forthcoming centenary of the publication of Ulysses, a uh, particularly important time for Molly uh, and Molly's programme will be launched on uh, the 2nd of February 2022, the 100th year, 100th anniversary of the publication of Ulysses. And here today, I'll be looking at the collaborative work by Mary and Pori Cullum, our friend James Joyce, published in 1958 immediately after Mary's death, um, a, a, a work, as I'll discuss later, of co-creation. So to begin with Griffith, uh, Cullum's old friend. Cullum and Griffith had a very long-standing relationship, um, uh, beginning, of course, with the publication of Cullum's early drama in The United Irishman. For example, the publication of the Saxon Shilling in Griffith's periodical brought Cullum to the attention of Yeats and Fays. Their personal and professional contacts, contacts lasted in detail until 1914, when the young Cullum couple travelled to the United States. Both Pori Cullum and Arthur Griffith were present, for example, in Hoth in July 1914 for the landing of arms, and the columns left for Liverpool and then America soon afterwards. On Christmas Day, 1921, uh, Pori Cullum published in the New York Tribune uh, this warm endorsement of Griffith, clearly a crucial time in Irish politics in the context of the treaty negotiations and, uh, and the treaty debates. And, and I'm very grateful to Colm Kenny for pointing me to this article uh, and also uh, warmly recommend both Colm's book, The Enigma of Arthur Griffith, but also his very valuable recent article published in New Hibernia Review on the relationship of Colm and Griffith. In what Porrick calls here a life sketch, he draws a number of connections between Griffith and Parnell as statesmen. In fact, in the later biography, he creates a sort of triumvirate um, consisting of Parnell, Davitt uh, and Griffith. In the article here, he writes that Griffith is the only man of the moment whose activities go back to the time of the lost leader. 
um, and making the point, of course, that Griffith, uh, in terms of his own um, biography, links back to the time of Parnell. But he goes further to argue that Griffith is, quote, the one political personage that has emerged in Ireland since Parnell's time. And he goes on to explain that description by saying that Griffith is not so much the greatest man or the most heroic man who has appeared, but he is the man who has had a real political idea. It's quite an, a nuanced profile, obviously with the benefit of historical knowledge and in the knowledge indeed of events that would happen soon afterwards. Um, the sketch has an, a number of ironic aspects. For example, towards the end, Colm writes that Belfast will look upon him, meaning Griffith, as a safe and sane Irishman of the South. It's also striking that it's not hagiographical. Again, in the article, uh, Colm references Griffith's well-known hostility to Jim Larkin and his antipathy of, uh, towards the socialist movement. And, and Colm writes, I think, in, in very prescient ways, the danger will be that he, Griffith, may have the workers against him, that he may make a union with a province and make division of class. News of Griffith's death uh, at the age of 51 on the 12th of August, 1922, reached the columns on ship when they were traveling back to Ireland. Uh, as described in Cullum's poem, Odysseus, in memory of Arthur Griffith, first published in the New Republic in 1923, with our ship cleaving through the seas for home and that news coming sparkling through the air. Anticipating some of the discussion of Colm as poet later today, I think we can see his skills, his very considerable skills as elegiast in the opening lines. You had the prose of logic and of scorn and words to sledge an iron argument. And yet you could draw down the outland birds to perch beside the ravens of your thought, the dreams whereby a people challenges its dooms, its bounds. The writing of the biography unfolded over many twists and turns over a series of, of decades. Uh, as he explains in the preface, Colin was drawing in part from considerable research compiled by Sean Milroy. And it would seem that much of the work on the biography was completed by Porrick immediately after World War II including uh, with the help of financial support from Joseph McGrath, Joseph McGrath, the pro-treaty TD, the controversial head of the Criminal Investigation Department in the Free State, but later the founder of the Irish Hospital Sweepstakes, from which he made a, a very considerable fortune. In the preface, Colm emphasises that he wouldn't have had any interest in undertaking the work if he hadn't known Arthur Griffith. And he explains that he knew him over a period of years as his first editor. I sat with him in his office. I walked with him and talked with him. I met him socially and, and privately. I also knew him in ways that round a figure, reports, quotations, remembered situations that are relayed in a circle in which a man 
has eminence. It's also clear that the biography was commissioned from Cullum by a circle of Griffith's friends, led by Senator Michael Hayes, including Joseph McGrath, W.T. Cosgrave and Richard Mulcahy. But in my own view, what characterizes the best parts of the biography is Cullum's interest in both the fermenting minds and the man who can give them focus, uh, to quote from the Dublin Magazine uh, article with which I began. And that can include a focus on the person in relationship, but of course also in conflict with others. Cullum's informants included Maud Gahn, his sources included the unpublished papers of Desmond Fitzgerald. And those informants and sources enabled him to deal very adroitly and sometimes very imaginatively with the events after 1914, when, of course, he was living in another country. Uh, and the example I've chosen is how Colum renders the events of 1916. As one reads the biography, it moves I think quite strikingly into a different register. The sparse groups along the street on Monday forenoon looked very casual to a young woman who was hurrying from Liberty Hall to the post office. They were not gaping at what was so startlingly there. It was a flag, a tricolor of green and orange with a white strip between, and it was flying over the post office. The young woman had been assisting in preparations for the insurrection. She had been to Liberty Hall on an errand. And the next two to three pages follow uh, the events of um, Easter Monday from the point of view of this young woman, who is revealed at the end of the episode to be Mrs. Desmond Fitzgerald, in other words, Mabel McConnell Fitzgerald, who had relayed um, who had related the episode to Colm himself. Uh, and again, that aspect of Mabel McConnell's presence in the GPO for the early days of the rising, you know, has had actually taken quite a while to come back more generally into the historical record. It's a striking moment. I think it's a really interesting narrative choice by Cullum, and it's one of a number of moments um, in the biography where he's really breaking um, the boundaries and, and the conventions uh, of the genre. And I'm just going to swerve for a moment to compare Cullum's treatment of 1916 with the recollections given by Mary Cullum as to where the Cullums were themselves when they heard the news. They were living um, in a New York um, boarding house in um, Beacon Place. One morning we went down to breakfast and picking up the newspaper laid at our place saw that what we knew was going to happen had happened. The names of the leaders stared out at us from the paper. The young men I had worked with, had danced with, had read poetry with, Porrick Pierce, Thomas McDonough, Willie Pierce, Joseph Plunkett. I felt the eyes of the room on us. Tremblingly, I looked up. Everybody seemed to be talking of the happening. The Lebedevs alone were sympathetic. The French were disapproving, if not entirely inimical. The South Americans, all from countries in a perpetual state of revolution, were angrily hostile. Do you know these people? Someone asked. They are our friends. 
And even this short episode itself points to intriguing transnational connections, which I'm hugely enjoying tracing in relation to Porik and Mary's life um, in New York. For example, the Russian emigres Lebedevs uh, mentioned here were close friends of one Leon Bronstein, better known as Trotsky, who Mary Cullum recalls was a, a regular visitor to their West 80s boarding house. Colm Kenny has shown in his article that the biography was subject to a number of critiques, um, partly for its poor referencing, but also, I suppose, a sort of question over Colm's authority to compile the biography. Uh, and, and it's clear that Colm himself sought to preempt that through the numerous references throughout the biography to, quote, the present writer or the present biographer. But I think the most insightful review comes from Terence Devere White reviewing the biography um, in the Irish Times uh, in December 1959. Um, he alludes here to Cullum's living abroad. But I think what's more compelling is Devere's White, White's recognition of the importance of generational difference. Uh, and indeed, in our own commemorative moment, I think his comments continue to show light on the importance of generational difference in shaping historiography of the revolutionary period. So he says, Mr. Cullum, who has lived abroad, has kept alive the contemporary perspective, which has been quietly shifting as time passes and judgments are revised. He is old enough to have seen a dream come partially true, to remember his friends, men of her only names, to a new generation. He warmed his youthful hands at the fire they made, and he keeps the ashes sacred. A new generation seeks its own flame and begins to question some of the political gospels. My own view is that Cullum, I think, at, at, at the best moments in, in this biography, and, and partly because of his diasporic identity, is able to provide or indeed preserve a contemporary, or for those of us who remember our Saussurian linguistics, a synchronic perspective. Though inevitably with the passing of time, the diachronic, the production of difference across time means that those recollections would be questioned by later generations. De Vere's White's review closes with more enigmatic lines. It's hard to believe that this charitable narrative is about men who came in the end to kill one another. There is no word of hate and no severe comment. Everyone concerned will find a salve for his conscience in its pages. And that opens, I think, for me, a, a much larger, more open-ended question about the role of biography as salve or maybe analgesic. Uh, and here I want to juxtapose that um, with a very recent comment uh, on biography and emotion from an article by Kirsten Maria Powell writing about biography and emotional practice. And Powell comments that biography as a genre attempts to reconstruct emotional scripts while also necessarily producing them. Biographical narratives make sense of emotions for oneself and others by way of a meaningful composition. Emotions may even be their organizing principle, 
and reason for composing a life in the first place. But autobiographical or biographical narratives are also devices of making emotions. They interpret, clarify, reinforce, or help to overcome emotions through accompanying or retrospective description. So with those points, uh, biographical narratives making sense of emotions, but also themselves devices of making emotions, uh, I want just for the last 10 minutes or so uh, to speak briefly uh, about the second biographical example, our friend James Joyce. It is very much shadowed by the Ella Jake published a year after Mary or Molly Cullum's death. And it comes from a very vibrant friendship um, that spanned many decades between Pori Cullum and James Joyce. For Mary Cullum, it was a more recent friendship developed in the 1920s and 1930s, um, especially during the Cullum's time in Paris in the 1930s, in the course of which uh, Mary developed a particular closeness with Lucia Joyce. In the slide here, I've just given some selections, and this is far from exhaustive, uh, of the ways in which uh, the columns were professional friends to James Joyce. In a recent very valuable article on Joyce and Column, John McCourt begins the article by saying, James Joyce had reason to be grateful to many people over his lifetime, and to very few did he owe more than to Pori Column. And he goes on to show the way in which Column served as an influential, uh, again, quoting from John, a pro-Joyce voice that was heard for decades on both sides of the Atlantic. And as well as professional promotion, he also offered Joyce much practical help. As I'm tracing in my own research, that relationship spanned decades, as I mentioned, including Column's ill-fated attempt to secure publication of Dubliners from Monsell and Company, represented by George Roberts. Uh, and that episode, I think, troubled their friendship um, for uh, a number of years subsequently. Uh, both Mary and Porrick generated financial support for Joyce at the end of World War I, uh, I and then uh, renewed uh, a relationship uh, and indeed, I think, deepened their relationship in the 20s and 30s. Just in the slide I've given here, uh, it's interesting, for example, to pause in Mary Cullum's uh, reviews of Ulysses, her early review of Ulysses and the Freeman, which was published in July 1922, was said by Joyce to be one of the three reviews that pleased him most. And also I think very striking is Cullum's uh, support for work in progress. And the early recognition by both Porrick and Mary uh, of its of its importance. Um, so, with Joyce's encouragement, Colin provided a preface to Anna Livia Pluribel in 1928, uh, and Porrick's indeed role earned him a thinly disguised reference uh, in Work in Progress, which survives in page 550 of the published Wake, the SS Porricks in the Harbour. Our, our friend James Joyce uh, is structured in two parts, uh, almost half devoted to Dublin uh, and the second half um, to Paris. 
Uh, and in the uh, early pieces by Pori Cullum, uh, again, the city, the importance of the town and the generation uh, emerge very strongly. Uh, here is Pori Cullum. The size of the city and the pursuits of the inhabitants give rise to an interest in character, an interest that was present in all the coteries that the Dublin of the turn of the century composed itself into. A character's doings and sayings would be repeated from coterie to coterie, losing none, nothing in drama or humour in the repetition. When I first met James Joyce in 1901 or early in 1902, he was beginning to emerge as a Dublin character. Already there was a legend about him. Uh, and Porrick and James first met, uh, he tells us, at an evening party organised by Augusta Gregory. In the early chapters, he recollects one conversation in some detail. Uh, and here again, it's a re recollection that I think is doubly revealing of both biographical subject and biographer. Um, it's very vividly recalled by Colum. Um, it began uh, in the National Library, uh, National Library, uh, a haven for Pori Colum, whom, again, I think it's important to remember, you know, uh, never received formal uh, third level education. Uh, and, and clearly the National Library really was his university. Um, in uh, our friend James Joyce, Pori remembers with great affection that the reading room was open until 10 o'clock and, and provided a crucial social and intellectual life. And the episode that he recalls in detail happens when one evening the young men went through the turnstile at the same time uh, and Colum, I suppose, plucked up his courage, so to speak, and, quote, spoke to him on the stairway. Uh, and Colum goes on to say, I think he took my approach as an act of homage, it was, and was willing to go along with me conversationally. In the conversation, the young Joyce, just 20 years of age, uh, delivered uh, the, for Colm, I think, very memorable short comment, I distrust all enthusiasms. Uh, and this is Colm's reflection. It was natural to think, and I suppose I thought it, that a young man who distrusted all enthusiasms was a singular character. And for Joyce to say this, in the Dublin of the day was to set himself up as a heretic or a schismatic, one who rifles the deposit of the faith. To us at that time, belonging to a movement meant fellowship, exhilaration. It meant moving away from the despondency of the generation before and toward a new national glory. Who would not be in such a movement? And it was animated by enthusiasm. I'm trying to find a word for the way that young man standing on that street corner said, I distrust all enthusiasms. It was not with any youthful bravado. It was rather like one giving a single veto after a tiring argument. McCourt, I think, makes uh, the point that at this stage in their youthful careers, Colm was, quote, way ahead of Joyce and the act of homage should have been the other way around. But what's also striking here uh, and throughout the narrative is an absence of competitiveness. On the one hand, these are deeply affectionate musings, but to keep Pal in mind, they're also devices of making emotions. They interpret, clarify, reinforce, or help 
to overcome emotions. So one is tempted to speculate some of the emotions that may need to be overcome uh, about the different paths taken uh, between these two, taken by these two men. And at times, Colum himself moves into a speculatory mode quite explicitly. Suppose it had been otherwise. Suppose that when he came back to Dublin this time, Joyce had walked into the publisher's office and been handed the proofs of his first book. Suppose he had gone back to Trieste with a small check on a Dublin bank and a dozen copies of Dubliners in his trunk. What a different impression he would have had of his native city. Joyce would have been happier, of course. His mind would have been free of the suspicion of persecution he was prone to. But would there then have been a literature of exile? Here again, one is tempted to read between the lines written by a man who himself lived outside of Ireland and for most of his adult life. But also, more intriguingly, a, a way of making peace with even tidying away some troubling early encounters. In the James Joyce Remembered Collection, which I mentioned earlier, and which is forthcoming from UCT Press in coming months, Anne Fogarty places Concarn's text in the context of what she calls a distinctive subgenre or a constellation of memoirs about Joyce and UCD which include works by J.F. Byrne, Eugene Sheehy, Curran, and of course here the columns. And she argues in a comment that I think we'll return to in the commemorative year to come that, and I'm quoting from Anne here, rather than being dismissed as historical curiosities or homages in a minor key to a literary genius, they should be seen as acts of co-creation as well as being an epiphenomenism of modernism and part of its unfurling aftermath. I briefly mentioned, I don't have time to, to, to look at it in detail. Uh, it's perhaps another conference paper that our friend James Joyce is an act of co-creation located in two places, as I mentioned earlier, but also written by two authors. The structure is quite surprising and I'm looking forward to the chance to talk about this in more detail. As a reader, one expects um, alternating chapters and initially this seems to be the case. But as the work progresses, a number of chapters include short pieces from both Porrick and Mary. And in a number of cases, these are republications of earlier pieces. It's, it's hard to describe, and I th thought the best way to describe it in these closing two or three minutes is just to, to, to show some screenshots of, of how it looks to the reader. Um, so this is the end of, of chapter seven, um, a, a striking comment by Mary Cullum, um, where she says that up to nearly the end of his life, Joyce was waiting patiently, she thinks, for a signal for, from the Irish government. And Mary's pieces are often more analytical, porics frequently and often quite deliciously anecdotal, as in this succeeding piece beginning of chapter eight. Joyce operates like a general, I remarked to Ernest Hemingway, who was in the shop, uh, the Shakespeare, like a general of the Jesuits, Hemingway said. In the inscription, uh, and uh, this is my closing slide, in the inscription for our friend James Joyce, and apologies, this is a little blurred, 
Porik explains how events in their own lives overtook the work. And as I mentioned earlier, the work was ultimately published after Mary's death. He says the inspiration came from Mary Cullen and the shape of the narrative was, was planned by her. Illness prevented her from writing as many of the chapters as she intended. However, by discussing the whole work with me, by recalling situations, by enlivening the recollections that we both could draw on, she to a large extent carried through what she initiated. She wrote on sheets that were inscribed with the first line of a sonnet she loved. And that line which so expressed her should have a place here. And it's a line from Mallarmé, Le Vierge, Le Vivace et Le Bel Aujourd'hui. I'm longing in my own archival work um, to get hold of that note paper. Uh, my own ar archival work had to be temporarily um, uh, sheer um, because of the pandemic. I'm longing to find out more about this act of collaboration uh, and all the other aspects of a life lived jointly from 1914 to 1957, the years for Mary and Porrick that preceded uh, and the 15 years for Porrick alone that succeeded their marriage. Lots of questing uh, and hopefully questions ahead, but it seems um, in the honor again of, of the memory of their work, let's finish uh, with the concept of vivas. Thank you everyone. Thank you so much, Margaret, for that wonderful talk uh, on Cullum and the complexities of literary biography in terms of production and reception. Uh, really, really stimulating and it sets us up wonderfully uh, for today's uh, symposium. Um, I was particularly struck, actually, by the, the, the extract you, you showed us from Kirsten and Maria Powell. Uh, in terms of her approach to biography uh, and, and her focus on the emotional. So I might come back to that in, in the questioning. Um, I'm going to invite people to, um, to, to, um, to uh, put questions in the Q&A uh, for Margaret, which I'll, which I'll pass on. Uh, well, people uh, do that. I might have one or two myself, Margaret, um, if you don't need a breather. <laughs> um, no, I was, I was just thinking back uh, in particular just to focus back in on Cullum's own work as a biographer uh, in terms of Griffith and Joyce. And I was just struck by a number of things you said. Um, and I suppose my question is, I'm very interested overall in Cullum as a writer and how he breaks the boundaries of genre in terms of not just biography, but um, as a playwright, as a poet, and obviously as a writer for children. But to focus back in on the biography, I suppose, and if we use the Griffith one as an example, um, in many ways, he was best placed to write that biography on Griffith. Uh, and at the same time, it was commissioned by Griffith's friends. And I was just wondering, you know, once or twice uh, in, your, in your talk, you, you talked about at the best moments or in the best moments of the biography. And I was just wondering, you know, what, what you kind of meant by that. Was it uh, the fact that Cullum may be too close to his subject? Um, so maybe, I don't know, if you, if you want to talk a little bit more about that, you know, Cullum's, um, I suppose, if we focus on Griffith in particular, how successful is that biography, do you think? Thanks, Keith. 
I mean, I, I think it's mixed. Um, and I suppose I was I was gesturing to that. <laughs> and thank you for picking up on that. Um, in, in what I said, I think it's mixed. And, and there are times that it's overly detailed. But I, I think from the point of view of Cullum himself, it, it's uneven for fascinating ways. And, um, and, and part of the unevenness is, of course, as you say, to do with the fact that he's dealing up until 1914 um, with a man that he, he knew well. And, and as I mentioned, that's part of his motivation for writing it. Uh, and then from 1914 onwards, he's dealing with a period of, of, of um, Irish history where, you know, to a large extent, he was an observer. But I think that itself, uh, you know, is fascinating. And I, I think itself, um, um, you know, requires more attention than obviously I can give it in the time here. Because then the second half, one sees how Cullum is perceiving this from, um, from the States. He actually got into quite a bit of trouble himself in New York in, in 1916 for what was seen as his anti-German sentiments and, and fell foul of John Quinn for that reason. You know, so, so there's another whole dynamic playing out in terms of Horik and Mary's lives um, in New York, kind of watching what's happening. Then add into that the period of time the fact that I, you know, he's he's writing this. I, I haven't been able to locate exactly when most of the work was done, but my guess is in, in the late 40s. So he's writing it and then it lies dormant for a while. So they're all the developments that, that are happening. And I think from that point of view, it makes it a very revealing historiographical source. I suppose the kind of metaphor that would come to mind in many ways is the palimpsest. A palimpsest not just of, of Cullum's own life, but also the layers of his historical interpretation at the transnational and the diasporic. Um, but it hasn't received a lot of attention. I was struck, for example, looking at the DIB entry by Michael Laffin on, um, on Griffith recently. The, the Cullum um, biography doesn't appear even in the list of, of, of references. Um, Colin Kenny's recent article in New Hibernia Review is really informative. I'd warmly recommend it to anybody who wants to read more. Uh, and, you know, he makes the point that the the reviews really fell on, I suppose, slightly predictable lines of um, in terms of the Irish, you know, the Irish press, for example, and Frank Gallagher specifically giving it a very negative review. Some of the swipes against it were, you know, this man is out of the country. Uh, and that's why I'm so interested in the turns, turns to Veer White, because I think uh, initially, when I read that, his comment, I thought it was a similar sort of swipe. But in fact, as I read on, I thought it's a, it's a, it's a very nuanced um, reading of 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 the palimpsest of, of the different kind of layers of authority, and I suppose from my point of view as a you know as a, a beginning biographer myself, it's really revealing as as you picked up yourself there, Keith, of biographical authority. You know who has the authority to write. Um, is distance is distance a problem, or or might distance be desirable? So the the writing of 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 the Griffith, you know, brings all of those um, into play. But but it is as a read. I'd have to say there are times it is turgid, and then there are times that are sparkling. I mean, the the move into presenting 1916 from the point of view of 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 Mabel McConnell, I mean, was inspired, and it just wakes you up as a reader. 
Um, um, but but it's very different in register to quite a lot of the rest of the biography. Sorry, that that's a long answer. Oh, no, it's a it's a wonderful answer. Yeah, the the, mo the moments where it seems to sparkle, um, which come across in your presentation, you know, you can really see that so clearly. And yet you have that sense that, you know, these might be just moments <laughs> as you, I won't use the same word, turgid. Um, it, it just, it, just to stick on that, this line of kind of questioning for, for, for a minute, if we compare that then to you, it seemed very, very interesting, um, the, the other biography on Joyce, and you started to talk about structure and um, the co-authorship, which is really, really interesting in that. So just on that as well, I was thinking about, I think you mentioned as well that uh, Mary's uh, review of Ulysses was uh, reportedly one of only three that Joyce himself approved. So I was just wondering, could you speak a little bit about a little bit more about Mary Cullum herself as a writer uh, and her influence on Cullum, maybe in relation to the biography? Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, she is she's absolutely fascinating, and and the the kind of lack of 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 recognition for her own writing and professional life is is scandalous, I think, and obviously is, will motivate me uh, to keep to the desk for, for quite a while. I mean, in in the twenties, she would have been described, um, for example, on one occasion in the Saturday Review, um, as as the greatest female uh, critic um, of of her generation, and that's in New York, where actually her Irish identity you know for in much of her writing life is isn't significant at all where where it is significant is that she's very loyal uh, and that she's continually reviewing people like Joyce mentioning Yeats and others mm. you know but the, the circles in in which she's moving um in, in New York in the 20s and when she's writing in the Freeman in in Dial in Sashir Review and elsewhere um is is, is, a, is a much different circle it, it's it's a circle that's less known to us today people like like Van White Brooks, for example, um, but she would have been an influential reviewer of Scott Fitzgerald, of Zora Neale Hurston. Um, so there, there's so much there to find. Um, there's an excellent website that's been put together that gives most of her journalism. So, um, but but the lack of the lack, I think, of of recognition, um, you know, of the professional life that she built. Um, in New York uh, is, 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 is both amazing and, I suppose, from my point of view, inspiring. And it, it's one of the things, Keith, I'm, I'm, and, and again, be very grateful for um, any suggestions people have to make in this regard. It's one of the things that really interests me in tracing in their writing lives, because my sense is they moved in and out of, of um, in, in effect, who was paying the rent, you know, I mean, obviously... <laughs> Cullum did very well from 1916 onwards with with the contract with Macmillan's, uh, and that you know gave um, that gave them some stability. But then that 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 you know began to be worth less to them, and, and ultimately went away. So they move in and out of their um, of, of of financial security at different times. And this may be heretic to say in the context of of an event that's dedicated mostly to Pori Cullum. My own feeling is that may. Mary got the gig in Colombia and included Porik, um, you know, uh, and again, I'm, I'm itching to get to the Columbia archive to get that and indeed to un uncover, you know, whom they taught, I mean, to teach a, a course in comparative literature for decades in Colombia meant that they had, you know, um, influential students, but but my own sense is that that she actually got that gig. Okay. Very, very interesting. Margaret, I'm going to, there's a question from Eve first, and then there's a couple of questions um, uh, in the Q&A. So over to Eve. 
Thanks, Keith, and, and thank you, Margaret. Just a wonderful talk. And I'm, I'm just, uh, I just wanted to pick up on Mary Column, and I know this is a Porrick Column event, but uh, um, many years ago, somebody gave me a copy of Life and the Dream, which I stupidly let sit on my shelves for years without even opening it. And when I finally did open it and read it, I was astonished by just how uh, extraordinary it is as an overview of Irish writing in an international context and the Irish writer in an international context. But what I wanted to ask you about was, I suppose, the spatial mapping that you're going to have to do with this biography. And one of the things that Mary Collum suggests very strongly to me is that there was often a kind of slightly troubling slippage that had to be navigated between an Irish-European sensibility, which you've tracked brilliantly through the Joyce connection, and an Irish-American community and sensibility, which was working in quite a different way. And I wonder how much you can, you, you're already seeing that through what you're doing on the columns and uh, their kind of global positioning. Uh, it's, it's a great question, Eve. Thank you. And in, in fact, it's one of the reasons why I'm kind of itching to get back to the Berg, which has a, a, a lot of their correspondence. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that the, the, the transnational involves both the Irish European and the Irish American. But I wonder if there's a way in which New York, particularly New York, you know, at the end of, uh, of the teens um, and into the twenties, in a way was a place that actually partook in both if, if that makes sense paradoxically, you know, that they, they were mixing with other European migrants in New York. So I, I think in ways this may be a third space, which is the way in which the European and, and the uh, um, American um, can interact in, in, in somewhere like New York. Um, uh, because I, I think, that, yes, I think there's a danger that we read the Irish-American dimensions too much only in the later part of Pori Collins' life. Um, or, I'm overstating that, actually. No, let me put this more constructively. Because he lived so long, he moved through many phases of, of what we would consider to be kind of Irish-American relationships. And, and he had a, a, a really um, important role. I mean, one of the words that is kind of emerging for me all the time in my own research about Pori Collins to mention him clearly in his own right for a moment is his generosity. He was astonishingly generous. And I think often at to the expense of his own career. Um, I, I started compiling and you know I haven't even finished it. The, the number of occasions where he provided forewords, prefaces, essays for fellow writers. Uh, and the list is so long. Obviously, we saw that with Joyce, um, but you see it with lots of other writers as well. He provided the foreword for Con Curran's memoir. I mentioned he provided the foreword for Morna Cooley, uh, Splendid Years. You know, all through his life, he was really sponsoring, supporting, often at times where he was financially precarious himself, other other kind of reputations. But but sorry, I'm, I'm meandering a little bit there, but just to come back to Eve's point, um, I think one of the one of the very uh, fascinating aspects, but because Porrick lived so long, is, is that I, I actually would be looking at spatial uh, developments or the kind of chronotope, perhaps you might call it, of Irish America in a number of different guises, uh, and, and as you say because of the encyclopedic 
amount of references in life and the dream, um, uh, you know, one can trace that in quite a bit of detail uh, for, you know, the kind of the, the pre-independence period, which is maybe um, the, the more, more neglected one. Part of the reason I wanted to show this off is it's a very beautiful um, a republication of life and the dream that Porrick sponsored um, from Dalman Press um, in the 1960s. But for anybody interested in Mary, um, the memoir is easy enough to pick up um, in, um, in, you know, in secondhand bookshops and delighted to hear you mention it, Eve. Thank you. Thanks, Eve. Thanks, Margaret. Um, there's a couple of questions we'll go to, Margaret, um, in the chat um, from Rosalind. Do we know how fluent the Cullens were in speaking Irish and how they learned it? I understand he taught a Scalena, so it would be safe to assume that this was uh, completely uh, an Irish medium school. That's a, a tricky one, Rosalind, and I'm not sure is the honest answer at the moment. My sense is that maybe Colm wasn't fully comfortable um, in, in Irish. Um, uh, so um, certainly, you know, he would have come and the importance of, as we'll be looking at later today, or hearing about later today, you know, the importance of music and, and orality in his background. But, but my own sense at this stage is that there would have been a, a certain insecurity um, that he had regarding his own kind of knowledge of Irish. And I suppose it, it's part of maybe, uh, again, um, people who know my work in Prasna will know it's, it's a topic that really interests me, that, um, that we need almost a, a, a more flexible model in, in terms of when we talk about people's knowledge of Irish, because, it, 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 you know, obviously some people are fortunate enough to be fluently bilingual, but there are a lot of people who have some competence, some reading competence, some some competence in conversation. Uh, and my sense with Porik is that there was some competence there, um, but certainly not um, the full competence, you know, that that many of his contemporaries had. Was that a competence in, in reading, translating rather than writing, Margaret? That, that's my sense at this stage, but I'm absolutely open to correction on that. I'm, I'm, I don't know myself. It will be my sense as well. Uh, another one, Plutarch had for Mary. <clears throat> Plutarch would have been against the emotional anecdote. Instead, he led readers through the lives of his chosen great men and allowed the reader to reflect. Today's journalism overly dwells on the emotional. He was a lovely man. Have we lost the capacity to distinguish genuine greatness when the human rises to the situation? Yeah, I think Mary's point there belongs, I think, very um, well with a kind of an ongoing debate that's happening in biographical studies at the moment and, and some tension between kind of biographical studies and life writing. Um, so just in the, in, in the short reference that I gave there and to Pal, I was, I suppose, gesturing to that as, as, as a much larger debate and, and again a debate and I'm kind of educating myself about um, um, at the moment. Um, I suppose, though, my own feeling, Mary, from the, the, the Plutarch quote, and even aligning uh, uh, myself up with Pori Collins' invocation of Plutarch, um, that the focus on the great man, you know, can miss a lot. And it's it's one, I suppose, of the implicit points in my own presentation that even when Pori Collins was writing biographies of that of what would seem like the great man, he was always interested in, in the circle, they're kind of fermenting circle um the more 
and not one or the other. That, that's an important point that maybe I should have brought out more clearly. It's not actually one or the other. It's not replacing one mode with the other. Um, it's both. But it does make his writings fascinating then because we learn we learn about so many other people as well. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, Margaret, I mean, even um, in the in the short time we've had Q&A, I mean, I'm, we've touched on so many things, which I'm sure are going to reappear over the course of today. And that last thing as well, this this idea with the shift from the, the single lit, literary life to the to the collective. It's a really, really interesting one. Um, the as um, E was talking about transnational connections, uh, as I raised the, the breaking boundaries of genre. You mentioned exile there. There are so many things that are going to reappear, I'm sure, in the course of the, of the day. Uh, uh, of, of the day. Uh, thanks so much. I'm conscious of time um, and um, there, yeah, so just uh, loads of uh, thanks coming in, Marion, the brilliant keynote full of interesting details and columns. Uh, community so thank you so much so look on behalf of everyone margaret and particularly myself and poor i just want to thank you for that wonderful uh keynote which has really set the bar for today and um i know you're going to stay with us throughout the day and also for the round table at the end so thank you uh margaret for your so generous with your scholarship uh, and your time it's really really appreciated thank you a real pleasure thank you um, at this point, I'm going to uh, invite people just to uh, take a break for 15 min minutes and to rejoin us um, on the, uh, there's a second loop link, the people could rejoin us there at 11.15 and we'll get into the panel, so thank you everyone. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history to of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.